So nice to see you this morning. What a blessing to be able to open up the word with friends. I see so many friends here, and that's just very, very exciting. Um, So this workshop, in case you are wondering what I'm teaching on, (laughs) um, this is Walking in Trust with Christ in Uncertain Times. That's the name of the workshop. I think it's appropriate uh, that we be encouraged in the word because there's lots of uncertain times um, happening. But anyway, um, for, those that you, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Shelby Cullen, and it's just my privilege to be part of the women's ministries here at uh, Grace Community Church. Um, I serve in EWG. How many EWGers here? Yeah, quite a few of you. Um, love that ministry. So such a blessing. Um, I also serve on the biblical counseling team and I know some of you are biblical counselors out there, or you know what biblical counseling is, or you've received biblical counseling, whatever. <laughs> so that's a blessing, too. And my husband, Sean, um, who's actually in London right now, he's on a short-term missions trip, but um, he and I are, have, are part of Grace Life Fellowship. Do I have any Grace Life people in here? <laughs> yeah. So we serve, um, of course, under Mike Riccardi and Phil Johnson, and they're just wonderful wonderful men of the Lord. And um, by God's grace, I also uh, get this privilege of serving our young people at the Master's University. I'm a professor there, and I see some students out in the audience, but how many of you know about the Master's University? Yeah, you know about it. And um, we, uh, we actually start school August 29th, and um, it'll be my 14th year. It's amazing how fast the time has gone. Um, but I just love that ministry. It's a blessing. Um, Because part of my great passion, um, whether it be pouring into students at TMU or here at Grace Community Church, um, I just love pouring into women. I love pouring into women God's word. I'm very passionate about it. I love it so much. Um, And I, I just know that we need God's truth to help us navigate the side of heaven, do we not? We do. It's important, um, and especially in the context in which we live. And so that's my goal this morning, is really just to encourage you. This This is about me, even though I'm up front, coming alongside you and encouraging you with the Word of God. And I want you to be encouraged. I hope you walk away feeling that way. So even though we don't have, uh, don't let that distract you. But anyway, let's just talk about a little bit about these uncertain times in which we live. Boy, don't we? We do, and I have a list for you to consider. I just want you to just kind of consider the last couple of years, okay? Just the last couple of years. (laughs) Um, We have learned to deal with so many different crises that have really forced us to adopt really a new vocabulary, I think. I mean, consider the first crisis that comes to mind, global pandemic, right? That's a phrase. Did that ever enter your mind before? That's something new, and along with that reality, we've had to adopt that vocabulary, and so we know coronavirus, which is now COVID-19, probably called something else. I just didn't get that far. Then as it's progressed, we've learned habits such as isolation. We've learned habits like community spread, or at least we know the phrase community spread, transmission, incubation, ventilators, social distancing, and quarantine. And you know what's so funny about quarantine? The last time I had a conversation with someone about that was with my dad, who was born in 1940, people, and we were talking in the context of polio. 
So it's just so weird. That doesn't come into our mind. But it is a crisis. So not only do we have that, but we, as we kind of think about uncertainties um, and just even, you know, just that the coronavirus really spreading and morphing even two and a half years later, we've also learned, or at least we've also experienced this uncertainty of people that we love being put in jail over this issue, right? Pastors being put in jail. That is so crazy. What, you know, we say they're encountering persecution, being placed in jail for keeping their churches open. And for them, it was the worst of times. But you know what? I got to talk to one of the pastor's wives. And, and although it was the worst of times, it was also the best of times. Because God used that in such an incredible way for the gospel. And so we know from scripture, right? Romans eight twenty eight to 29, God uses all things together for our good, for those who love him. And he's also in the business of what? Conforming us into the image of God. And so, worst of times, but it can also be an incredible, fruitful time. Now, let's talk about California. Do we have uncertainty in our state? We do, don't we? Left-wing politics. Do I need to say more? Left-wing politics, their agendas, socialized government, laws that afford people this ridiculous opportunity to kill a helpless baby 24 days post-utero. Ridiculous. Um, Uncertain. Over-sexualized society. Non-binary society? What? Yes, that is in our language. And now, according to the news of late, what are we officially in, ladies? A recession. Yes, so they say. Yeah, a what? And then, of course, you know, as you just kind of, you know, take it further, uh, there's this uncertainty of just agendas, um, and we just find them very perplexing. I, I find them very unsettling, and yet none of them are a surprise to God, none of them. None of them escape God's sovereignty, he, and he reminds us of this in, in his word that I'll just go ahead and invite you to turn there because we don't have the PowerPoint But I just want to remind you in his word that all uncertainties this side of heaven are just a reflection of the last days. We're in the last days. Um, We we live in these last days before Christ's return. And I want you to turn to 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5. I'm just going to read this to you. And I think that you'll relate. Paul says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self and lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of good of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, Avoid such men as these. Now, I want you to know that when Paul penned those words, he's much older. He's at the end of his life. He's sitting in prison. And he is reflecting upon the uncertain times in his own culture right now, at this point when he penned these words. And who is he writing to originally? Of course, he's writing to Timothy. And what was Timothy doing? He was pastoring a church in Ephesus, wasn't he? And he was dealing with a very, very difficult culture in his time. Now, it's just amazing. 
And so today, you know, like Paul and Timothy, we too are in the last days, and we, like they, we're all experiencing evidences of the fall. And you need to know that. So doesn't it make sense to you that this side of heaven that we're going to observe ungodliness, doesn't that make sense to you? It gives you perspective. Doesn't it make sense to you that there's disobedience run amok? Doesn't it make sense to you that uh, there's this lack of self-control in the culture? Haters of God. So true. It grieves and overwhelms the mind. And so then it just begs the question, will we, as believers in Christ Jesus, will we be able to persevere in these uncertain times? And what's your answer? Absolutely. A resounding yes. As disciples of Christ, our faith and our holiness of life and character and spiritual mindedness will be the proof that the seed of the word of God in your life is doing its work in your soul. That's biblical. Jesus says in John 15, verse 16, I chose you, and I appointed you to bear much fruit. That's your Savior talking to you. So encouraging. And when Jesus spoke those words originally, he was speaking to the 12, okay, And they were about to face their own uncertain times. For in a short time, Jesus would be crucified. He would die, but he would rise again on the third day. But he would also ascend into heaven. And so he's leaving these guys behind. And believe me when I tell you that in a short time, they would have to learn how to walk and how to trust and have peace with Christ in their uncertain times. And there were many. There were many. So in like manner as disciples of Christ today, should the Lord tarry, we have to learn how to do the same. We have to learn how to walk and step with that same standard to which we've attained, cognizant that our citizenship is where? It's in heaven and being anxious for nothing as we eagerly await our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so with that eternal mindset, what I want to begin with this morning is some doctrinal encouragement. We are our theology, ladies. We've got to start with the doctrine. And I want to teach you some things, some truths, just to help to to remind you about who you are in Christ. That's going to motivate you initially. That's your foundation, to walk in trust and peace with um, the Lord. And, And it begins with understanding what the believer's posture is in Christ. The believer's posture in Christ. As disciples of Christ who have counted the cost and are willing to follow Christ wholeheartedly, what should our walk look like in the day-to-day despite the uncertainties that we face? And more specifically, what kind of fruit ought we to bear as we deal with the temptation towards being anxious in our life um, as we face those things? And so we're going to answer those, some of those questions by just looking to God's Word and get ready because you are definitely going to be navigating the sword this morning because I've got a lot of Scripture for you to look up. But we're going to start with Colossians 2. We're going to look at 5 through 7, Colossians 2, 5 through 7, um, and Paul writes, Even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Okay. 
Now, although 2020 was very difficult for a lot of us, many of you went through a lot of difficult things, um, I actually had a couple of blessings show up. What do you think those were? Yeah. And, you know, so I've got Noah. He's almost two, so just picture a two-year-old in your mind. And I have May, who's 19 months, so just imagine what my house is like when these two toddlers show up on the scene. You know, when they were about one, you know, somewhere in that 12 to 14-month range, um, it's exciting because they start learning how to walk, right? And aren't the telltale signs always there, you know, if you're moms? What do they start doing? They start pulling themselves up. They start kind of wobbling, you know, they're walking. And before you know it, they're just off without any assistance. And, of course, for me now, they're running, but they keep me on her toes. So I love that. But walking for, t- for a toddler, it's just a big part of their development. It's a big part of a child's development, and we understand that. But in the same way as children learn how to walk, we, as part of our spiritual development, we need to learn how to walk because there's something that takes place in every believer that's just really super important. And that's what I kind of want to talk to you about for a moment. Um, It begins with your position in Christ, that positional sanctification. It begins with your, your positional sanctification. Understand that when the seed of God's word was cast into the soil of your heart and it penetrated deeply and you were converted, you were justified. It's kind of a big theological word, right? But we've heard it before. And so what does it mean? It just simply means that you've just been declared righteous or right according to the appropriate law. And, and Paul talks a lot about this. He goes over this in Romans 3 and 4, you know, Galatians 2, that upon your repentance from your own righteousness, because we don't have one of our own, as we turned towards Christ and placed our faith in his finished work, we were justified. God removed the guilt and the penalty of our sin. And isn't it encouraging to know that it was past, present, and what? Future. While at the same time, declaring you righteous through that atoning work of Christ. So important to meditate on that. Um, I think it's a great mystery when you think about that. When I ponder that, it's a great mystery. Why would God want to do this work in us, especially when we were what we just read in, you know, 1 Timothy 3, right? Disobedient, disobedient children, rebellious children. We didn't deserve it, but nonetheless, what do we know about our Savior from Scripture? That he voluntarily laid his life down, and he took our sin, right, upon his shoulders so that we might live or walk by faith in him um, because he loved and gave himself up for us. And so when we truly trust in Christ. What I want you to kind of think about is, in essence, what you're doing is you're renouncing any righteousness that you think you have of your own, and then you're completely relying upon a finished work, Christ's finished work. That's trust in the beginning. And when you do that, when you completely trust in his finished work, you are sanctified in Christ or justified. That's an internal uh, condition. That's something that happens on the inside, in the inner man. You don't possess any longer a a heart of stone, right? Now it's a heart of what? A heart of flesh. That's right. You've been regenerated. So you know what? There should be a cooperation in you to walk in a manner that's worthy of your calling. That's what regeneration does. It removes, you know, just that countenance of wanting to do what's right in my own eyes. 
And Paul talks about that in Colossians 2, verse 7. When he says that believers are firmly rooted in Christ, he means the same thing. He's talking about your position. Um, And I'll just read another verse out of Colossians because that also speaks to it. But, you know, he says in Colossians 1.13 that it was God the Father who rescued the believer from the domain of darkness and transferred them into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sin. And so there was this sort of eternal planting, if you will, that took place... um, where God firmly planted you, you know, if you can envision that, uh, in Christ. And that's just a participle to be firmly planted or rooted. It's just a, it means, it's in the perfect sense, and so it, it means it's just been done to you, okay? It's been done to you. And as a result of being firmly rooted in Christ, something that I like to encourage my counselees is, guess what? You live in a Romans 8.1 reality because there's no more condemnation for you. Why? Because you're in Christ Jesus. That's important to encourage people with that. Your justification always results in adoption because to be justified is to be adopted into God's family as sons and daughters. And another uh, scripture I like to remind believers about is, guess what? God has begun a good work in you. God has begun a good work in you. Be encouraged by that. Justified. But as we continue to consider our posture in Christ, we also need to consider another doctrinal reality. So we move on from positional to the progressive sanctification. Um, In essence, this has to do with the freedom from the power of sin. If you were in EWG the year that we we, uh, studied Romans, Romans 6.4 talks about that. It reminds us that we've been buried with Christ into his death, right? So that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in what? Newness of life. Yeah, that's right. That's important. And so that's that's supported by another great passage, 2 Corinthians 5.17, when Paul says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, right? New things have come. And so God does this marvelous thing that we don't deserve. He justifies us. He adopts us. But he also changes us. He changes us from the inside out into a different person, a new creation. And as a result, you know, we have this new heart, this new spirit, this new identity, if you will, this new relationship, right, with God. And so as we step out in faith each day as daughters of the king, we've got to walk in a new way. We've got to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We're being continually built up in Christ and kind of just looking even at that participle being built up in him from Colossians 2, or yeah, Colossians 2, even that's in the present tense. And so what the scripture is telling you is that it's continually happening to you. You, as an in Christ one, are continually being built up in Christ. How encouraging. You know, we don't believe that, w- that we serve a God that just saved us and went far away. God's involved, He cares. And he's continually sanctifying you. He's continually building you up, moment by moment, day by day, month by month, year by year, what, decade by decade. (laughs) I could just keep going on with that one. But he's continually conforming you into Christ-likeness each day of your life as you submit your life to him and you choose, because you're not a robot, out of love, 
to obey. Choose out of love for Christ to obey his word and to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. But because we continue, are continually being built up in Christ, in a sense, we're only be becomings. We're only be becomings. Why? Because we're not perfect yet. We're be becomings. We're still learning how to strive for holiness while abiding in Christ. There's your balance. Striving for holiness while abiding in Christ. And so our walks will continue to have a cycle of struggling with sin. We'll still have days where we're continuing to confess our sin, repent of our sin. But as the scripture teaches, we cannot possibly continue in sin. Why? Because we're no longer in Adam. We're in Christ, right? We're in Christ. And so the bondage of sin you're freed from meaning that we can say no to temptations, and only in eternity will it be impossible for us to sin, and that's when we will be perfectly sanctified. What's another word for that? Glorified, right? Yeah, I see some people clapping their hands. Woohoo! glorified, yeah. Because, and, and I say amen to that too, because when we're glorified, what's, what's going on there? We're with the Savior, Right? We're with our Lord face to face, and then I can finish Philippians 1, 6. He who began a good work in you is faithful to what? Complete by the day. We'll also bring it to completion by the day of Christ Jesus. So we pray, Lord, come quickly, right? We pray, Lord, come quickly. But should the Lord tarry, and while we continue to live here on earth, we, learn, we have to learn how to actively discipline ourselves to walk in a manner worthy of our calling with a heart that is overflowing with gratitude to Christ because he's the one that makes it possible. And we do that prayerfully. We do that by faith, pulling ourselves up, as it were, and taking a few even wobbly steps, if you want to look at it that way. And by God's enabling grace, we walk. We push forward. Um, you know, I know it's not a perfect walk, but what's interesting is we live in this tension of already, but not yet, right? We're already saved, but we're not yet saved. <laughs> perfect, you know. So there's this tension, and so we, we do walk by faith, and we trust in the Holy Spirit to, to, to energize our efforts in that sense. We depend upon Christ, and we learn not to allow sin to have the upper hand. That's the thing. And so we can overcome obstacles, and we grow spiritually in his grace and holiness, even when we're faced with uncertainties in the world. And I'm sure all of you have your own. But thankfully, as believers learn how to walk in a manner worthy of their calling, they haven't been left alone to figure out what that is. I mean, my goodness, what a kindness. What do we have? God's sufficient word. And we have the Holy Spirit who convicts, teaches, helps us to walk. Praise the Lord for that. Because half the time, what are we tempted to do? Lean on our own understanding, right? But we have God's sufficient word. We have his spirit. It gives us everything we need for life and godliness, ladies. It's the truth. Even if you don't believe it, it doesn't make it any less true. Because it is true. And so I just want to encourage you that understanding doctrine, like I say posture in Christ just so I could have all P's in my outline, but really what it is is union in Christ. You know, I'm a teacher, teacher type. Um, Union in Christ, that's an important doctrine for you to embrace, for you to understand, for you to meditate on, think through. It gives you biblical perspective in a hard world that we live in. It gives you encouragement at the soul level. And you can respond not only by believing those truths yourself, but also by just living those truths, by walking, 
walking in the, in the day-to-day with Christ in trust, because that's our context today, in trust and in peace. Um, that position of being justified, adopted, and a new creature in Christ is just truly a privilege, because we didn't deserve it, but it's truly a privilege. Um, and so with our identity in mind, if you will, let's just kind of get a little more specific now. Now we're going to look at the, just the believer's walk in Christ, the believer's walk in Christ. Um, one thing I can tell you about the church in Colossae, it's kind of funny, I've, I've been to Colossae, and there's nothing there. It's just a bunch of dirt and a bunch of hills. But anyway, <laughs> there's no remnants. Um, but anyway, um, Paul has never met these believers. Did you know that? He didn't plant this church. He never met these believers. Um, and yet, his friend Epaphras, you know, came to visit Paul to tell him about these believers. And he says, these believers, they're examples They're examples of what Jesus talks about, you know, the seed that landed on the good soil of the heart. In fact, um, Colossians 1.5 says that when these believers heard the word of truth, which was the gospel, it constantly bore fruit in their life, constantly bore fruit in their life and multiplied even. And what that reiterates to us is that when the seed of the gospel enters your heart, which is if it's divinely ready, it's going to bear fruit. You know, so I hope you see some fruit in your life. It should bear fruit in your life. That's kind of what his friend was um, just explaining to Paul. And Paul, you know, when he heard this, he just overflowed with thankfulness and gratitude. Just overflowed. And so he continues to pray for this flock that he's never met. And um, yeah, But as soon as he was informed of their salvation, you know, he, we have this beautiful prayer in Colossians 1. Uh, like around verse 10, he just kind of talks about hoping that they're going to continue to walk, you know, in a manner worthy of their calling, hoping that they're going to continue to please God in all respects, hoping that they would continue to bear fruit. Um, And in that passage that we looked at uh, when we opened Colossians 2, 5 to 7, just kind of explain a little bit about what the word walk even means, because you see it a lot in the epistles, don't we? Walk, walk, walk. What does that even mean? Well, it's a metaphor, it's a metaphor. To walk is a metaphor that he often uses to just kind of explain that you are really trying, what, what the walk is, is you're living in light of the change that's happened to you, what I just described, you know, in that doctrine. You're living in light of the change that has happened within you. It's a word in the New Testament to refer to a person's daily conduct. And in this particular context, What Paul actually means is the walk means continuing to believe the truth about, well, to believe the truth and about Christ, to continue to do that, continue to believe the truth and Christ. Um, And what that tells us is doctrine matters. (laughs) Doctrine matters. And that's really what he is trying to say. And in this case, the doctrine of your union in Christ, it's essential. But really, broadly speaking, it simply means to walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. There's a simple way to put it. Walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. And the good news is we can maintain a lifestyle patterned after Christ because Paul already exposed the fact that when a person is firmly rooted in Christ or salvation has taken place, as an in Christ one, Christ himself becomes the source of your growth, your Christian growth, and enables you to walk in that manner worthy, producing fruit in keeping with your repentance. 
But what's interesting is the Christian life um, has a high standard of conduct. I mean, as you kind of read through the epistles, you start seeing this other word that qualifies it, this worthy walk, worthy walk. What do you mean by worthy walk? Um, and when a worthy walk is really somebody who, you know, it, I could just quote you so much scripture, but I'll just tell you. It's a person who makes it their fondest ambition, for example, to please the Lord. So where do we find that? I think it's 2 Corinthians 5.9. Make it your fondest ambition to please the Lord. It's a worthy walk is a person who bears fruit in every good work. A person who is actively in the word, increasing in the knowledge of God. Right? These are things that Paul actually uh, prayed for, um, even for these believers. Um, a worthy walk is a believer who lives out what they profess to be true. Lives out what they profess to be true. Our conduct in this life should match your position or what you profess to be, even in the face of uncertainty. And, you know, I've taught little kids before, and so here's your visual. Think of a scale. Your position is on the one side. Your walk is on the other. They need to be in balance. What you profess to be should flow out of your walk. Because that's actually what he means. That's actually what he means. That is the actual visual that Paul has in mind when he talks about a worthy walk. Um, It's believing the truth about Christ and then patterning your life after him. Right? So as you kind of, you know, survey Colossians 3 to 4, you're going to find out that a worthy walk manifests fruit like what? Compassion, kindness, uh, gentleness, humbleness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, love, and trust. And then interestingly, Paul talks about the peace of Christ needing to rule your heart. Rule your heart. How important is that? Um, but also, you know, just the, that peace of mind knowing that we, we, we can have peace because we have peace with God because of, of just because of Christ. But also we have peace of mind because of the peace that Christ brings. One of my favorite um, verses in the Bible is John 16, verse 33, where Jesus is talking and he says, In this life you will have tribulation, but I have overcome what? The world. Yeah. That's your Savior talking. And so as in Christ ones, so have we. So have we. That's encouraging. It's encouraging. That, that kind of truth should rule your day. That should dictate your every move as you ponder what Jesus is saying to you. Um, also, just kind of thinking through that in a world of uncertainty, the believer's conduct or their walk should look very different from the world, right? Because it manifests what Christ's spirit is doing in your heart. And so it's walked out of love and obedience to him, of course, and it's reflective of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. So what do we know about being a disciple of Christ? We must say no to self, pick up our cross, and follow him. Yeah, yeah, follow him at his word. And I think that the Apostle Paul is such a good example for us when we talk about these issues especially walking, you know, in such a way, in a worthy manner in uncertain times. Because at this point in Paul's ministry, when he was writing this letter to the Colossians, he was paying a considerable price for his obedience to Christ. He's actually in prison again. (laughs) Um, He's in prison when he penned these words. And so he's continuing to face uncertain times in prison. But nonetheless, he is pleading with the Colossian believer, and by extension to all of us, 
because the word is for all of us to conduct yourselves in a manner that is in balance both in your personal life and how you treat others in the body of Christ for the, for the sake of the unity of the, of the body of Christ and for the glory of God, even when you face uncertain times. And I know a lot of you do. That's really the kind of fruit that ought to be present in your life. And according, going back to our Colossians 2, 5 to 7 passage, notice that those who are firmly rooted in Christ, which is perfect tense, who are being built up in Christ, which is um, present tense, that results in an established faith. That is a passive voice, and that means that God is doing that to you. God is doing that to you, established in your faith. Um, and so just remembering once again that he who, begun, who has begun a good work in you is continuing to mature you in Christ. And consequently, as believers are rooted in Christ, being built up in Christ and established in their, in their faith, there ought to be an overflow of gratitude, right? Are you thankful for your salvation? Are you thankful for the work that God does in your life? I know I am, and it's just incredible because that word that Paul is using for gratitude, he's talking about... Um, this idea of to a great degree, an overabundance of thankfulness, really important. You know, and, and just quite frankly, let's let's think about this. We who have been give, forgiven a debt we could never, we who have been forgiven a debt we could never repay, who have been given everything we need for life and godliness, ought to make it a habit of life to praise God for all that He has done. It's important. Um, because it's because of Christ that we have everything that we need to walk in trust and peace. And so through Christ, may we continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips ought to give thanks to his name. That's Hebrews, by the way. Okay, so on that note, with a heart that's overflowing with thanksgiving, I want to talk to you a little bit. Um, I want to get a little more specific. <laughs> and I want to talk about this temptation towards anxiety. Am I the only one that's tempted to struggle in this way? Just wondering. <laughs> yeah. This is, um, this is important uh, to think through. I, w- I often tell my students that, um, you know, I polled women on what I should teach in problems and procedure type classes for biblical counseling. Top 10, anxiety is like number two on the list. Incredible. I, so I guess what I'm, what I'm thinking is, wow, there's no temptation common to man, right? We all struggle to a certain degree. So one thing that's interesting to note is that um, there are two types of anxiety or concern that the Bible talks about. There's actually two types. Um, on a positive note, there's godly concern. There's actually, it's the same Greek word. There is godly concern. Um, and we read about it. There's a couple of verses I can mention to you, like 1 Corinthians 12, 25. Paul is writing out of concern uh, to a church, to the church there. And he says, it's, it's, it's a, a verse that kind of has a whole context, but I'll just read the verse. He says that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And I'm just kind of honing in on that word care because Paul, the way he uses that is he uses it in such a way that he means genuinely concerned. He's genuinely concerned about what's going on in this church, right? He's genuinely concerned. Um, And in this context, he's concerned that the brethren in Corinth were not displaying an eagerness to maintain unity in the body. So, you know, as a pastor, he's concerned. Rather, their walk in Corinth, was more focused on what? 
they were, they were more interested in who had the greater gift, remember? Yeah, and they also were, you know, I'm a Paul, I'm of Apollos, right? They're divided in their heart. They got a lot of issues there. And so Paul is greatly concerned. And, and, you know, his desire was always that a believer would walk in a way that would express mutual concern for one another. That's a Christ-like attitude. So he's got concern over that. So there's that. And then there's another verse, same Greek word in Philippians 2.20, when he talks to the church there in Philippi, where he says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So again, um, that word concern, merimanao, there it is again, but he literally means in what he's saying here is, I have no one like Timothy who will show genuine anxiety for your welfare. Wow, we don't talk like that. (laughs) I have genuine anxiety for your welfare. But that's what he means. That's what he means. That's what we'd like to say, right? I have genuine anxiety. Um, So in this context here, anxiety um, or godly concern is a type of deep concern and care that believers can possess. It's indicative, really, of relational care for one another. Um, It is constructive. It is not a sin in that sense. In fact, Scripture recognizes it as being perfectly legitimate, and it's even noted as being godly. And so if I were to take this into real life, I'll tell you what I have some legitimate anxieties about or concern. I have a concern about what the public schools are going to teach my grandchildren. Should they go there? I have a legitimate concern about those agendas. I have a legitimate concern about missionaries that I know in the Ukraine. I didn't even talk about that. Another uncertainty, rumors of wars, for their safety and their welfare. Um, I have a genuine concern about my unsafe family, right? But the hope is that you will take that genuine concern, that godly concern, and you will... Um, you will go to the Lord about it. So it doesn't become ungodly concern, (laughs) right? Going to the Lord. Speaking of which, obviously, uh, the word also addresses ungodly concern. And we we have this wonderful passage in Philippians 4. How many of you have memorized that? Yeah, (laughs) I see a few hands going up. So let's look at Philippians 4. Uh, We'll start in verse 6. Paul is writing to the church there, and he's writing to them about their ungodly concern which is kind of interesting because they're actually genuinely concerned about Paul too. So they kind of got both things going on. But he says in verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And we're going to look at that in our application time um, even a little bit further. But in this context, Paul is using the same Greek word, mermanao, as he did in you know, 1 Corinthians and Philippians. But in this context, it has a negative connotation. So what he is saying, do not divide, do not part, (laughs) do not rip, tear apart, be anxious, or distract your attention. That's just kind of all the synonyms, that negative connotation. So unlike the care and concern that was expressed in 1 Corinthians and Philippians 2.20, obviously there's this type of anxiety or worry that we engage in that's destructive and sinful. Same Greek word, but the difference is between both of these definitions is godly concern focuses on God and others, okay? While ungodly concern focuses on, can you guess? Me, myself, and I, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's that's the big difference. It really is. Or it focuses on self-centered issues, right? We have a lot of those. 
And we have some really great examples in the Bible that we can learn from on this topic of ungodly and godly concern that I think you will appreciate because God just so kindly gave us two women in the Bible that struggled with this or didn't struggle with this, right? And so let's go to Luke 10. I told you I was going to have you all over the place. Let's go to Luke 10 this morning, and now let's look at our examples of ungodly and godly concern. Luke 10, starting in verses 38. I want you to know as you're turning there that God used this passage in my life greatly. He used this in particular to teach me how to walk in trust and peace with Christ in my own uncertain times. Um, It was very profound, um, and it really helped, helped me, just helped me to understand a few things. So follow along. I'm going to start in verse 38. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home, and she had a sister called Mary, who was also seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she walked up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the preparations alone? That's how loud it was. Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which will not be taken away from her. And so here we have two sisters. We also have a brother that's in this scene, um, you know, Martha, Mary, Lazarus. They live in a city called Bethany. It's, it's just outside of Jerusalem, not too far they're close friends of Christ. They're, they're Jesus' close friends. Um, and Martha, so, you know, just to, for context, it's just kind of, no, it's the real person in a real time. She's the eldest. She's probably the eldest do- uh, sister. And she's probably a widow. And this is probably her home. That's what most people kind of land on. And, um, you know, it's on the heels of Jesus teaching on discipleship. So he's traveling along. And so when the text says that she welcomed Christ into her home, Oh, it's not just Jesus. It's probably the 12th, too. Okay? So you can put yourself in that place. Um, so they're passing through. Martha invites them into her home. It wouldn't have been unusual. Um, when you look in the book of John, you find other passages that just kind of talk about um, how close this family is, how much they love Jesus. Martha even says in John eleven twenty seven that she believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You know, she actually says that. It's how wonderful that is. Uh, so we know something about her because we're going to be picking on her for a little bit. So we know she's a believer, okay? I'm not saying she's not a believer. She is a believer in Christ. She was near and dear to her heart. But on this evening, when she welcomed Christ into her home, like any good hostess, immediately she started to engage in the cultural expectation at that time, which is when you get, you know, you have people over, what do you do? You get on it. You get into this task mode, right? You get into this incredible task mode. And again, you know, maybe, maybe Jesus and the 12, lots of people there. Um, and I want you to know that it can really be assumed that at first Martha's original heart attitude or motive was just to serve Christ and just to be a blessing to the others. She went into it with godly concern. I really do believe that. Um, she had servant-heartedness. She had a desire to practice hospitality. It's beautiful. But Luke gives us an incredible glimpse into what happens when we go from joyfully serving others <laughs> with godly concern to ungodly concern. It's amazing. It's amazing that this narrative is in the Bible. So let's look at our passage. Go to verse 40. What 
is influencing Martha's ungodly concern or her sinful anxiety. What was she? The text says she was? Thank you. She was distracted with all of these preparations. And in the original Greek language, that has the idea of just being dragged all around, you know, and being sort of overly occupied or too busy about a thing. In fact, the text implies that Martha was in an uproar of some kind. I like that word. In an uproar, okay? In an uproar of some, with some kind of serving. And that's interesting because in verse 38, what the text seems to imply is that Martha's attitude on the outside is servanthood, right? She had good intentions. Um, she welcomed Christ into her home for a meal. She had godly concern. But somewhere in this process of preparing and serving, Martha becomes overly occupied with those details, and she becomes ungodly in her concern, and it began to manifest some really interesting fruit in her life. Shall we look at it? Okay. Shall we learn from her? All right. Let's look at verse 40 again. I just want you to think in terms of uh, actions, behaviors, above-ground fruit, as they say. Okay? So verse 40 again. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the preparations alone? Then tell her to help me. (laughs) First sinful fruit that manifested in Martha's heaven a day. Her ungodly concern is she interrupted Christ while he was teaching. That's rather bold. Her tone was, was angry. Okay, that's why I read it that way. Her tone, because, you know, when you read scripture, you don't always hear the tone. But she was angry, and she interrupted Christ's teaching. And I want you to notice ungodly concerns, self-focus, self-focus concerns. She's angry. The second sinful fruit that manifested or reared its ugly head that evening is she humiliated somebody in the process of interrupting Christ. She humiliated Mary, didn't she? Yep, right, right for everyone to see and read about. <laughs> she had made a wrong judgment about her. She seems to be implying that Mary's lazy. It seems to be implying that, or not caring in some way, or somehow she's being rebellious because she's not helping Martha with these preparations. And the third sinful fruit that Martha reaped due to her ungodly concern, and probably, I say the biggest bomb of all, was she said, Lord, do you not care? What is she implying there? That Jesus was uncaring, unloving, that Jesus was sinning. It's crazy. But ungodly concern can manifest in a life. (laughs) But that's what happened. And, you know, all I can say is, poor Martha, how did she get here? How did she go with the original motive of servanthood, wanting to practice hospitality? How did she get to this place? Uh, Yeah, (laughs) that's right. And just a quick note, um, A good friend of mine who had helped me with this study years ago told me that there are actually some ancient manuscripts that refer to this situation. And after Martha had said, Lord, do you not care? The ancient manuscript says that the disciples just kind of moved away from her, (laughs) thinking that they would be scourged by the, you know, flames of heaven or something. I don't know. I thought that was kind of funny. But, you know... um, I know, it's funny. There, there are a lot of things to consider, you know, because there's influences that happen. There are things outside of us that pressure us, 
And we can kind of consider some of Martha's. And I think it's important to think through that because, uh, you know, you have a lot of pressures in your life as well. And so it's helpful to look at hers. Um, we, the biblical counselor types, we call it the heat. You know, what is bearing down on Martha? Well, I would say that it appears from Martha's reaction that she was under a pressure uh, from a few things. Well, I would just say the very first thing probably is that she just is preparing dinner for a lot of people. She's just preparing dinner for a lot of people. And with that comes pressure to get everything right, you know, done on time. I think we can relate to that. I think the second pressure, to be quite honest, is just her culture. There's some expectations that happen in a culture, and her culture is no different. Um, they, they would have had expectations. Women serve. They prepare, you know, all these things. How about just the importance of her guests? My heavens. Jesus and the disciples are your guests? <laughs> I mean, wow. Okay, there's a pressure there, I'd say, just a little bit. Um, and then we can just consider her desire just to serve the Lord well. And so when we have people over, you know, we do the same thing. But I think that there could be a fifth possibility. I think self-imposed expectations. Do you know something about that? Self-imposed expectation. You know, these are just five possibilities that any of us could face in our life. And it's kind of interesting. On Thursday, I had my family over, and I started really thinking about this passage. I could really relate to her. There really is temptation towards anxiety when you're, you're, uh, you know, just taking care of people. I really related to that temptation of just being worried and bothered. It's, it's, it's real. It's real, ladies. It's real. Um, so as Martha's pressure began to bear down on her, instead of focusing on what is truly important, Martha allowed herself to become distracted, dragged away from the preparations and on her serving. And so now she was yielding sinful fruit in her life from a heart that is weighed down by ungodly concern, which is ultimately pride. You know why? Because in her pride, she didn't believe that God is sovereign and in control. And, oh, yeah, he's sitting in your living room right now. (laughs) We do that. Actually, we could say it's a sin of unbelief. Because anytime you succumb to anxiety or ungodly concern, if you really think about it, there are a few things that you're, you're forgetting to believe. You're not believing that God is sovereign. You're not believing that God is faithful. You're not believing that God is good. And you don't believe God cares. Now, I don't think you wake up saying that. But functionally, you're walking that when you're anxious in this way. Okay? And so here she is. She's trying to control, and she's only focusing on her task at hand. And again, I'm going to think the best. If she was a counselee and she came, I'd be like, you know, Martha... I really think that you love Christ. I see that in you. I think you had great plans of seeking to minister to people. I know you wanted to serve others. I know that you welcomed in her, in, in, him into her, your home. But in this moment, we have to understand why you were sinning to do it. <laughs> right? Why are you sinning to do it? Um, and so, in the same way, if we're not careful to guard our own hearts... With all diligence, as the scripture says, we will fall into the same trap. It's, it's really easy to get caught up and distracted by things that we need to do. And so this context in particular is just serving others. We can, we can uh, relate to that. But what about being distracted by things we hear on the TV about these uncertain times? Are you glued to the TV? 
Are you a conspiracy theorist? It's kind of funny to talk to people that are. Are you on, are you reading the newspaper constantly? Or I shouldn't say that. Do we even have a newspaper? Um, are you on social media constantly? I guess it would be more like relative, you know, uh, whatever platform. I read, uh, what do I read? I read Ben Shapiro's stuff. Okay. So are you, Daily Wire. Thank you, Daily Wire. I listen to Daily Wire and Al Mohler. Okay. But are you distracted by those things? Do you dwell upon what the world says? Is it dragging you away from Christ? Is it dragging you away from Christ? And for some of you, it may not be the latest conspiracy theory that the media is trying to spin, but it could be just the busyness of your life, your family life. It could be the busyness of your ministry life, you know? It could be the busyness of work, school, lots and lots of things that we do. We just become overly occupied. We become too busy about a thing, and suddenly, before we know it, we find there's no joy in our life, there's no peace, there's no pleasure in just giving God the glory, just sinful worry and anxiety. And I understand the cultural expectations. I get that for Martha. I get the expectations that we have as wives and mothers, sisters and daughters, students, employees, you know, but I think that Martha most likely had some self-imposed expectations upon herself. Did you observe from the text that Martha ever asked Mary to help? She didn't. She just expected her to help. She just expected her to help. And she demanded that Jesus tell her to help, by the way. I want you to know that. You know, and when Mary didn't rise to the occasion, what happened? She lost it. Martha lost it. And in that moment in time in her life, This fruit was ungodly. And Jesus actually just calls it sinful worry. Sinful worry. You know, distractions over preparations for this meal became something other than Jesus as the focus of her heart and her attention this evening, that evening. But Jesus, who is all wise and all knowing, he rebukes Mary so or Martha so gently in verse 41 by saying, Martha, Martha, you are worried. You are bothered by so many things. And the word Jesus uses for worry there is just the same Greek word. It's merimanao. But in this context, he's just saying, Martha, you have so much care and concern over this dinner. You really do. And it's not godly, you know. It's not godly. Um, You know, Martha was so intently concerned about this future dinner. Again, I think it was godly as it started out, but in the process of her godly concern, somehow she lost concern for Christ, you know? So Jesus lovingly rebukes her and says, only one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. That's such a significant part of that entire narrative, and it's something you ought to highlight in your Bible because what he's saying there is above all things, that you do, no matter what that is in your context, above all things you do, whether it be preparing a meal, watching cute little grandbabies, um, or even if you're in the face of some really difficult trial or difficulty, whatever that is, Jesus is reminding us that we are to be about making our aim to commune with him solely. He has to be our priority. He has to be the priority. And as Luke emphasizes in this narrative, it is only when Jesus has filled up our own life and ministered to our own soul through his word that you will even experience supernatural peace 
oh, by the way, that the world doesn't understand, right? You have to spend time with Christ. He's the one that ministers to your soul at that level, even in the worst of times. And I really meditated on that as I prepared dinner, even on Thursday for my clan of nine. And it just really helped me because it, it, I, I noticed that I just I became prayerful. That was good. And I thanked Christ for my family. And I thanked Christ for the opportunity to serve them. And man, it was just a blessing. Now, in Martha's case, she was probably taken a little bit aback by what Jesus' rebuke was all about. I really think she was in the right. Don't we all feel that way? I think I'm in the right, you know. But I want you to know that what's so amazing is eight months or so later, we have another dinner party that I'll just tell you about that happened at um, more, more than likely Martha's house. And it was like eight months or so later. It was six days before the Passover or before Jesus would die. And um, in that case, um, you know, Mary was anointing Jesus' feet. Martha was preparing the dinner. And who was complaining? Judas. In that instance, eight months or later, she had learned. She learned how to see that this was the importance of this occasion. Um, for in a very short time, Jesus would be crucified. And so in this moment, eight or months later, eight or so months later, by the grace of God, she chose to walk in trust and in peace as they most likely would face a lot of uncertainty. So if Martha was distracted by much serving, thereby reaping ungodly fruit, what was her sister Mary up to? So let's learn from Mary now. Verse 39 says that, and she had a sister named Mary who was also seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. And so in contrast that we learn there to Martha's distraction, Mary was focused and sitting lovingly at Jesus's feet. And there's an interesting side note here that I think is, is cool to kind of understand. Um, in that culture, rabbis would take on certain students, right? And those students would literally sit at their feet. And they were considered their disciples. And so what Luke is really, he's doing something rather interesting. He's giving you a visual. So when he says that Mary was sitting at Christ's feet, he's purposely giving you a word picture of what a disciple is. Sitting at Christ's feet. And so in this moment in time, Mary was um, taking on the role of a disciple, which was really radical. Because rabbis did not take on women as disciples. But Jesus did. In fact, we know from the Gospels that he encouraged women all the time to listen to his teaching and become part of his ministry. And so here we have two women, same circumstance. It's such a great um, compare-contrast. But one woman is distracted. They both love the Lord, but one woman is distracted by her task at hand, and it's lending itself to great tumult in the heart. And the other woman is focused on Christ's every word. Mary was not lazy, as Martha may have assumed. She just understood the importance of the occasion. And so she was sitting at his feet, and Jesus was shepherding her through, shepherding her at the heart level through the teaching of his word, which is what happens when we make it a priority to spend time with Christ. He's shepherding her. Jesus is ministering to her and shepherding her, even as she or we, we will put ourselves in that context, face uncertainty. And so that evening, Mary's heart was in the right place. And Luke is using her as an example for all who consider themselves to be disciples of Christ. Because like Mary, 
are we, you know, we have to ask ourselves, our hearts, this questions. You know, like Mary, are we who we claim to be, his disciples? Are we really focusing all of our attention on him, primarily? Or are we like Martha? Are you finding that you're distracted right now in all of your whatever? Could be dis- it could be just preparations with our uncertainties, whatever that is. Maybe you're angry because somebody's not meeting your expectations right now, and you're distracted by that. And I just want you to know that you know, small narrative in Luke taken from the life one day from the life of two women it had a huge impact on me personally. You know, here we are in a recession, but you know, we had one already in 2008, did we not? And during that time, my husband, who's a, my dear husband, who's a, uh, he's a, he's an electrician, but he's a commercial electrician. So he's in commercial industry. And during that year, everything just shut down. He didn't work for a year. I had two kids in college. I had a kid in high school, kid in junior high, and we were just faced with a lot of things. We were faced with quite a few things. And I remember just getting distracted and dragged away by the fact that I might lose my family home over this. You know, a lot of people lost their homes. Um, You know, I might have to pull my kids out of college. Um, Not the worst thing in the world, but, you know, things happen. You just create a lot of scenarios. Why was I creating negative scenarios? Because I was literally being dragged away from Christ, (laughs) you know. So I'm filling up my mind with all of these things, and I became consumed, and I became so ungodly in my concern, and I had to go back to work, by the way, 14th year, God provides, but now I, I like going to work, I'm not saying that I have to, I'm just saying it's, it's wonderful, but back then, it was a difficult decision, because I had been a, a stay-at-home wife and mom most of my, you know, 30-plus years of marriage, so it's tough, it was tough, so how wonderful is it that God would use, what is it, 38, 39, 40, about five verses, in your life in such a profound way. I repented when I read this, when I studied this. I repented of my ungodly concern. There's another passage. I probably won't have time to go into it um, in depth, but you, on your own, what I want you to do is I want you to consider Matthew uh, 6, 25 to 34. There I've got um, some things for you to think about. Let me go to that page. Um, why? It's just, it's just neat because, you know, Jesus talks about the impact of just walking in ungodly concern. Or we would say Jesus talks about how foolish it is to be anxious about your life. I know you're familiar with Matthew 6. It's just a portion of his Sermon on the Mount. And he's just telling the crowd, he's telling his disciples, he's telling all of us that it's just really foolish to be um, anxious about your life because it's just unproductive, okay? And you can take a look at verse 27. When you get a chance, he just talks about, you know, worrying. Does it even add anything to your life? What does it add? Well, for me, it added gray hair, thank you very much. <laughs> Kidney stones, thank you very much. Sleeplessness, right? There's a lot of things. So it doesn't add anything, it's also unproductive, um, or it's also, Jesus says, anxious, anxiety is just foolish because it's unnecessary. And he talks about that in verses 28 to 30 that you can look at sometime. He's just saying it's just unnecessary because God is completely able to take care of you. He's trustworthy, ladies. He knows your needs. He knows your needs. Why do you fret so much? He knows what you need to eat. He knows what you need to wear. He knows what you need Stop fretting. 
He's going to provide even during this recession. I believe that. Stop fretting. He's concerned for you. And then he talks about anxiety being foolish because it's unbecoming. Why is it unbecoming? Because it focuses on what you don't have. You're not focused on the giver. You're only focused on the gifts you don't have, right? The things you don't have. You know, you act as if you have no hope. At least I would, I suppose if I'm doing this, throw her back at me. Okay, so I act as if I have no hope. Um, You know, he calls us to stop worrying just like he did to Martha. Stop being bothered by so many things. God already knows. He just tells you to, um, to seek him first and his righteousness. And then I have for you, letter F, just some attitudes that will manifest, things that you can really guard your heart about if you're wondering, you know, when I'm tempted. You know, first, you're going to know you're succumbing to ungodly concern when your thoughts are focused on changing the future. Can you change the future? My gosh, let me know how you do it. God is sovereign. We know that. Stop trying to solve things in your own strength. God is able. Go to, go to him in prayer. And then you know that you're becoming anxious when you recognize that your thoughts are unproductive. We already talked about that. Don't wander into the land of what ifs. That's what I did. You wander into the land of what ifs and you make things up. It's not thinking of things that are true, right? Third, you succumb to ungodly concern when you have a tendency to allow it to control you versus you controlling it. You can be really easily controlled. We saw that in Martha's life, right? It dictates every move you make because it's on your mind constantly. Four, being anxious can lead you to neglect other responsibilities and relationships. When you're ungodly and you're concerned, you're going to be exhausted and distracted. So you're going to neglect your home life stuff. You're going to neglect relationships. Five, anxiety can damage your body. We know that. I, I just suffered so much physically. You know, your body's soul creatures. You're hurting physically, it's going to impact the spiritual and vice versa. You're symbiotic. Six, anxiety can lead to a loss of hope instead of finding answers. Again, you know, if we're spending so much time worrying and fretting about the future, rather than looking to Christ for hope in his word, you're going to feel hopeless. And this is where it can get really scary for many people. Because it can actually lead to despair that can manifest into suicidal thinking. Got to watch that. Got to guard your heart. All right? The pandemic brought a lot of that out. People felt isolated. It was tough. It was tough. All right. So let's end on, on a good note. Um, let's, let's go into our application now. We're going to talk more specifically about walking in trust and peace with Christ. You know? Uh, What do we do when we find ourselves tempted towards ungodly concern? We'll just go back to that Philippians 4 passage. You were there before. We'll just try to flesh it out here. uh, Starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to men, to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice 
these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul, uh, speaking through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, really is just teaching the believer that instead of succumbing to ungodly concern as we face uncertainties in our life, we can walk with Christ. But it begins with a few things that he's pointing out in this passage. And the first thing that he brings up is we need to have a right response or, or an awareness of God, a right response to awareness of God. Um, and, and so, let's see, I got lost in my notes, sorry. What I was going to tell you, even before I get there, is that he actually uses rejoice twice, which I think is amazing, because it's actually a command to rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. It just means to be glad or to welcome. It's just repeated for emphasis. And it's, it's just important to note that he's writing to a church to rejoice. They're facing difficulties themselves. It's kind of an odd rejoice, you know, thing to say to people. <laughs> but he knows some things. He's saying you can rejoice because as you continue to face your difficulty, what I want you to know is that the Lord is at hand. And he's not talking about when the Lord comes back someday. He's actually referring to God's omnipresence. He's with you now. Perpetual nearness. That's what he's focusing on. We can rejoice because even in our difficulty, the Lord is near. And where was Paul when he wrote this letter? In prison. Again, in prison. You know, even though Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter, and even though these saints are concerned for Paul, they can still respond. We can still respond with praises and prayer and contentment towards God. Why? Because God is sovereign. He's faithful, and he's in control, and he is perpetually near to every believer in this room all the time. His nearness is your good. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. He is there. So having a right view of God or a high view of God is just super helpful when we're tempted towards anxiety. He also says we need to have right praying, right? And six to seven, we can walk with Christ and trust in peace as we choose to engage in right praying. Again, you know, he starts off verse six with do not be anxious, that same word that uh, Luke and Matthew used in their narrative. But this time, um, the believers commanded to put off this ungodly concern that you have and put on prayer with thanksgiving, Put off anxiety, put on prayer with thanksgiving, and that just means to put on a heart that expresses gratitude to your triune God. And it kind of goes all the way back to what we started with, thanking him for your position, (laughs) right? In Christ, express gratitude. There's so many things to be thankful for. I mean, right? Amen, right? I bet you have 150 things you could just spout off right now, but it's so important. He is going to use these uncertainties to grow you in steadfastness. That is a biblical promise. Hang in there. He's going to use it to conform you into the image of Christ. Hang in there. You know, and so you ought to overflow with thanksgiving because you are rooted in Christ and you are continually being built up in Christ. And when we have right praying, what follows is peace. But that's a divine peace. That's supernatural peace that surpasses all understanding. That's a peace the world doesn't know anything about. Nothing. That's what guards your heart in Christ Jesus. That word guard in verse 7 is a military term, and it implies that peace stands on duty to keep anything out that brings concern and anxiety. Okay? Right praying. 
Then he says, we have right dwelling. This is probably a memory verse for a lot of you. Instead of getting dragged away by uncertainties in the world and just filling your mind with nonsense, um, we are commanded in verse 8 to be thinking about things that are truthful, noble, worthy of respect, that are just, lovely, commendable, morally excellent, worthy of praise, worthy of praising God. All of these are standards for the Christian thought life, right? These are standards. You can come up with just practical application. That renews you in the inner man. And so not only are we to have a right response here, a right praying and a right dwelling, did you notice that we also have to have a right practice? You have to have a right practice. Paul talks about that, right? We are to practice these things. He says, what I have sought to teach you, uh, and, uh, you know, he, he's saying what I, how I've lived my life, live it that way, live, live, follow my example as I follow Christ is really what he's saying. And in the same way, that's what I'm trying to do this morning because this can't be a bunch of head knowledge, okay? Can't be a bunch of head knowledge. You have got to see that these truths that you're being taught are meant to be embraced in the heart, but they're meant to be walked out in light of it. And so I hope that that would be helpful. Um, But you have to be committed to being a doer of the word, thereby committing to walk in union with Christ and just emulating him daily. And in this particular context that we were talking about today is we're just talking about putting off attitudes of ungodly concern and putting on attitudes that show you truly trust your Savior in all things. And from that obedience, we are promised peace that surpasses all understanding. We said that. And so ask yourself, what do you need to practice today when you come away from here? Maybe it's seeking to grow in your view of God. Maybe your view of God is too low. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe you need to spend more time with your Savior sitting at his feet and allowing him to shepherd your soul. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe you've been defaulting to grumbling and complaining too much, right, about work family stuff, and you need to work on thinking righteously, whatever that is to you. God is so good. He gives us so much to ponder, and I know I've, I've just thrown a lot at you today, but I just wanted to share with you this morning, and I think it's been amazing to open up the word with you. I love studying these truths because you know why? I get to apply them to myself first. I don't want it to be a bunch of head knowledge for me either, Right? And so I've enjoyed bringing these truths to bear upon your heart as we learned how to walk with Christ in trust and peace and in uncertain times. And as we conclude, I just want you to know that the prayer of my heart is for you to walk away here, from here just feeling motivated and stimulated toward love and good deeds and a greater appreciation of the Savior that you serve, right? And may you treasure him above all. And may you walk humbly and faithfully with him each day. So before you go, let me pray for you. Father God, I thank you for planting each believer in Christ. I just love thinking about being firmly rooted in Christ. And so we thank you as in Christ ones that not only have you firmly rooted us, but you are continuing to build us up in Christ. And so now we have this capacity to say no to self and yes to you each day. And I pray that you would help us to do that especially as we face uncertain times, Lord. Um, I really pray especially that we would trust you in these last days, 
And I pray that as we are trusting you, uh, seeking not to be uh, ungodly, have an ungodly concern uh, towards the difficult things, that we would sit at your feet and be shepherded by your word. And may we, as a result, walk in trust and in peace. And may we also pray, Lord, that you would come quickly. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.